Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. In this episode, we're covering Foundation by China Mieville. Uh, this was a story published in 2003 in the Talk of the Town magazine of The Independent on uh, the Sunday newspaper, which is a UK newspaper. But uh, this story feels like it's about America in a lot of ways. Oh, it sure does. It sure does. And I'm, I'm really... I don't want to say excited because this is going to be, I think, a fairly depressing and heartbreaking story, but I'm really interested to have the conversation we're going to get to have at the end. But before we get there, and in fact, even before we get into the recap, before we get into the episode really at all, uh, we want to share a new thing that we are doing. Uh, One of our listeners, which is to say one of you, wrote to us to ask why we sell extra episodes, why we sell bonus episodes, but don't sell nominations to the votes. And uh, the answer to that question is that we're kind of dumb. <laughs> That's a great idea. <laughs> so we're totally stealing it. And uh, we've even made our first sale to the listener in question who purchased the nomination of Robert E. Howard's classic story, The Black Stone. And uh, I will say, too, I was given the impression that this listener does not think that I really should be trusted to pick out the best Howard stories to talk about. <laughs> uh, I think that's probably right. So I'm really excited about this. Yeah, it really is a great idea. And it's going to open up the kinds of stories that we cover. There's a huge number of, you know, writers and horror stories and weird fiction stories, all sorts of stuff that are that are a part of the broader genre that neither you nor I are aware of. Uh, we're, we're, we're probably more familiar with uh, older writers, you know, which we represent pretty well on this, but contemporary stuff is stuff I'm interested in reading as well. And this is a great way to get some of that or to mix in stories that our listeners are really interested in hearing us talk about. Yeah, I do think this is really going to open up this show, and it really is a brilliant idea, and I do feel dumb for not having thought of it, but uh, here is how this is going to work, right? So episode commissions are extra episode, and, and what that means is that if we normally do 24 episodes of Elder Sign a year, and you want to commission us to cover a favorite story of yours, then that means that we'll do a 25th episode that year, and and we also do those right away, right? The turnaround time is, is usually a month. Actually, it's usually less than that. And nominating, on the other hand, nominating to the votes will just mean that there's a chance that your story will be one of the 24 episodes that we have regularly scheduled to do that year. And we do say chance, but really, if somebody pays us to nominate something, we will record an episode about it. Even if the voters keep rejecting it, it just might go on Patreon and it might, you know, take a few months for that to happen. So the the difference really between commissioning a story and nominating a story is that you're not getting extra content and you're also not going to get it right away, right? The lag time is going to be several months. The commissions are a better deal, I would say, if you're really excited about something and you want it now. But if you're patient and if you're willing to take your chances, then I would say consider buying a nomination. And we're going to sell those for $60 per episode that we would need to devote to the story. Though, of course, Patreon supporters get discounts on that. And at certain levels, you get a free nomination or uh, even recurring free nominations. And As we've said, I I am really excited about this because I do suspect that our ballots now are mostly going to be stories that listeners have nominated, which is awesome. Uh, I really do feel foolish for not having built this into the model of the show from the start because really the idea always was that we wanted to be doing what listeners wanted us to be doing. So I'm really excited to, to have this just open the show up. Yeah, I cannot wait. And I really am excited to see what our supporters and listeners want us to read and cover on Elder Sign. 
And I, I should add some more details here about like how to actually go about doing this since we have not really set up an online shop yet, though that I think is in our future next year. So I should say that you can get in touch with us at our email, which is listed on the front page of our website, which is claytemplemedia.com. You can also find us on Twitter and Reddit. Uh, and if you are a Patreon supporter, you can message us on Patreon. And uh, with any of those vehicles, you could just say, hey, uh, how do I hire you to do this episode, either as a commission or to get it on a ballot? And we'll, uh, we'll be in touch with you about that. But, uh, but all right, let's, uh, let's turn our attention to the matter at hand here. I really enjoyed Foundation. It's got an eerie and, and even, I think, menacing buildup. And then a revelation that is quite serious, and I do think that this discussion is going to leave the, the two of us feeling pretty drained, uh, but I think in a productive and, and interesting and even profitable way. So, so Brandon, let's, uh, let's get into it. You watch the man who comes and speaks to buildings. He circles the houses, looking up from the sidewalks, from the concrete gardens, looking down at the supports that go into the earth. He enters every room, taps windows, and wiggles ill-fitted planes. He prods at plaster, hauls into attics. In the basement, he listens to supports, and all the time, he whispers. This is how the story opens. It's in second person with a man who is known as the House Whisperer from America. He's a phenomenon there. He listens to buildings and they whisper back and he can then tell you what's wrong with them, whether it's a faulty foundation or just why the wall is damp, where the pipes are leaking. Whatever it is, he knows what's wrong and he's never wrong about it. He smiles when he speaks, but he carries a lot of tension with him. And though this story opens by telling the you, the second person, to watch him, the audience... It's really a third-person story. The next thing we do here after this bit of introduction is follow the building whisperer along his drive where he just takes in all the foundations and he looks at building sites as he passes them by and watches the giant machines move the earth. Yeah, and these giant machines are going to come back in a big way. It's a real subtle way to introduce this idea here at the top of the story. You know, this is only our second China Mayville story, though it will not be our last. But I have to point out that the first one we did was about sentient streets. And this one seems, at least right now, like it's going to be about sentient buildings. So I, it feels like China <laughs> Mayville had sort of a program here, you know, about 20 years ago. Yeah, I wonder if his sort of progressivism or socialism is... Uh, really tied up in what it means to be a member of a local community. It certainly seems that way to me. And I agree. It was really funny to open this story and think, does this guy really only write about community building projects? Like, what's going on here? Uh, but again, this story, like Report of Certain Events in London, is uh, about, in some ways, being a part of a place and what it means to be a part of a place. Um and uh, he maybe just has this on his mind a lot and sees the way that housing and place and being are tied into politics and uh, group identity and things like that. It's, uh, it's a really interesting approach to some of these, uh, some of his interests as a progressive, as a member of progressive political parties. 
And I always like to engage in what has been called crit fic, meaning you like to make up stories about how stories came about. And uh, so I do like to imagine China Mayville during this time, sort of wandering around London and really thinking about the infrastructure of the city and thinking of, you know, what are some weird tales? What are some horror stories I could tell about the physical, the material aspects of 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 a city, especially cities that are are old, as most of our cities are, being having been constructed uh, really between about 1870 and 1920, right? That our cities have gotten old and crumbling. This is, is something that has become a political issue. But I do like to envision China Mieville just on long walks, thinking up stories while he looks at cityscapes. And uh, that's not a bad, it's not a bad thing to do. No, certainly not. Well, the main character of the story, the building whisperer, I don't think we ever really get his name. Uh, His nights are a little different from his days. At night, he dreams, and his dreams are really apocalyptic. The sky is a toxic slurry of black and black-red clouds. The earth is turned to powder. Language is gone and dead, replaced by pig-like grunting. And I just want to point out here that this story is is narrated in a very dreamlike way. And it's not quite stream of consciousness, but it does kind of move through topics rapidly. So uh, if I start with a dream here and then go into this next thing that's, you know, in the next paragraph, um, it's just because the way the story is narrated just kind of pulls you along these almost disjoint ideas until they coalesce at the end. One of the ways that Miaville does this is to write the story in the the present tense, right? So you pointed out that it starts off in second person and then does switch to third person, but it is in the present tense rather than the past tense, and that creates this sort of dreamlike quality to it. In fact, in terms of the use of voice and tense here, this story reminded me an awful lot of Gene Wolfe's masterpiece, The Island of Dr. Death and other stories, where Wolfe employs some of these same tricks. Yeah, absolutely. There are certainly some uh, style and voice choices that overlap with The Island of Dr. Death and other stories. Well, while this dream is going on, the, the narrative continues to tell us about a time where the man tried to build an addition onto his own small house, which is on the edge of the city. Uh, But he only got so far as digging a hole in the ground, and that hole is still there. It's all that remains of his efforts to build this foundation. And he stopped digging this hole when the foundation spoke to him, and a terrible liquid swelled up from the ground. And when he sees the foundation in his dream... uh, He wakes up and wretches, but he can still hear the foundation speaking. It says, we stay, we are hungry. And this is a a strange moment in the story because typically when we think of a building foundation, we think of not just the hole in the ground, but the poured cement that supports the whole house that bears the weight of the house on it. Um, But here we see that the foundation is something other than that, that it's something that's exposed by digging this hole in the ground and not the kind of cement pouring and the load-bearing structure that we would typically think of, that Mieville is getting us to think of in terms of houses and buildings in the way he introduced this concept. In the mornings, the man kisses a photograph of his family. They're gone and they're scared of him. But he has a job to go to. 
It's in the Mid-City. It's an apartment building, and there's a crack through two of the floors. He goes down to the basement, and he listens to the foundation. The foundation speaks. It says that it is hungry and hollow. He sees through the floor into the foundation. And here we see for the first time what the foundation really is, what this man thinks when he thinks about the foundation. It's a stock of dead men, an underpinning, a structure of entangled bodies and their parts pushed tight, packed together and become architecture, their bones broken to make them fit, wedged in contorted repose, burnt skins and the tatters of their clothes pressed as if against glass at the limits of their cut, running below the building's walls, six feet deep below the ground, a perfect runnel, full of humans poured like concrete and bracing the stays and the walls. That's all a quote from the text. The foundation speaks again. It says, we cannot breathe and we shore you up and we eat only sand. Then the man asks about the cracked wall after experiencing this true horror. And the foundation speaks again. The bodies of the men speak. And they tell him that there's rot halfway up the wall and a break that will spread. uh, And the sides are just going to settle. And the man listens. And as he listens, he realizes that there's nothing really wrong beyond the apartment building settling. It won't collapse or be a danger to anyone. And that's what he tells the residents of the apartment building committee who hired him. This is just a cheap building that's settling. Right. So this is where we learn that the story is not actually going to be about sentient buildings. It's uh, it's dead people beneath the buildings, dead people who can see into the walls from their vantage points uh, lying on their backs at the foundations of these buildings. I will say, though, that at this point, I'm perhaps maybe a little bit incredulous that every building is constructed on mounds of dead humans. I'm also not sure that there is sand everywhere, which is something that we get a hint at here. They say they eat only sand. And so maybe something else is going on here. And of course, there is, and this is all going to come back. But these are masterful little hints, little teases that Mieville is planting here. Yeah, I think this line that we shore you up and we eat only sand is really important, at least the we shore you up bit. Uh, there is certainly a meta- there's certainly a metaphoric quality to the idea that everything is built on on the, the foundation of people who are dead, who have come before us that Mayville is engaging with, though he has something far more specific in mind than just the idea that uh, we're a part of a stream of history, that people who had bodies acted in in the world and made whatever sort of life we live possible. Uh, There's there's more specificity to that kind of rather general and banal claim (laughs) that's taking (laughs) place uh, in this story. And and I can't wait till we get to it. Well, the, the man does a few more jobs and all the buildings, the malls, the suburban homes, He just realizes that everything is built upon this foundation of bodies that that underpin the city, and he can hear them all. Again, he dreams. He tramps through land that that swallows his feet, almost like he's walking on, on quicksand or soft sand. And he sees misshapen men wander around aimlessly. 
and a terrible liquid. Again, this liquid imagery returns. This thick, like syrup-like liquid tries to get at him just below the dusty ground. And he hears the foundation speak. And this time, it's not underground. It's above ground. A wall of dead men are now as high as his thighs. It says, we do not end. We are hungry, hot, and alone. The foundation is trying to build something out of itself. Again, we return to the building whisperer at work. And this time he's in new construction developments or track housing uh, plots uh, and other places. And he tells petty developers if the land will present problems for houses early on before they start building so they can know whether or not they're going to have to rebuild these houses or if they're going to collapse while they're building. And he's been doing this work for almost a decade. And this is kind of how time moves around in this story. And only now has he found the building that he's been looking for. So we learn that he's looking for something in all of this work that he's been doing. There's also a comment on kind of the corruption of uh, politics and land development here, which is uh, a great theme of you know noir and hard-boiled detective fiction uh but but it's also you know a real problem for a lot of communities this apartment building that is the building that the building whisperer has been looking for is built cheaply it's 30 stories high and it was here again only allowed to be built through the corrupt combinations of shortcuts in capitalism and dirty local politics the kind of confluence of those two uh, uh, realities. The foundation of this building is in a swampland. And this made me wonder if this is a reference to Washington, D.C. Uh, and everything is crumbling. The building is in terrible shape. It's definitely going to fall. And even though the man knows that this building is in bad shape, he tells the owners or the residents or whatever that there's nothing to worry about. And then he dreams again. And the bodies that make up the foundation are up to his chest. Whatever they're trying to build above ground is growing. Three months after the man tells this high-rise building, this apartment building, that everything is fine, it finally collapses in on itself. And he watches the news reports. He sees that many people have died, including six children. And the man pleads, he begs to the like with the foundation, almost like, prayerfully uh, to accept this as an offering he fed the foundation with more bodies and now he can just be left alone now they can find somebody else to bother yeah this line is uh man it's intense it's heartbreaking here's what he, he says in fact actually the verb that Mieville uses here is whispers there's something for you to eat god please it's done it's done leave me alone you have something to eat I've paid it back. I've given you something. Man, that's that's really, really intense. And uh, you've done a great job so far, Brandon, of bringing in the, the gorgeous writing that Mieville brings to this story. I mean, this is a gorgeously written story. The narration, I mean, it's just enthralling, right? And so I think what that means is that it can go without notice that we are halfway through this story before we get to this point. And it's only this, and it's only here at this point that we actually get even a hint of 
plot, right? That the narrator is not merely describing the house whisperer, but is maybe going to tell us about an event or an, an incident of some sort. And the, the character, the house whisperer, is now finally up to something, right? There's some action being taken in the world in the sense that he has lied to a client so that this building will collapse because he's trying to appease the foundation. But it's really only here, halfway through, that we get this plot movement. Right. And this is really the beauty of uh, short story writing is that you can you can take your time if you invest in voice and style and uh, good prose, even in a very short story, you can take your time to capture the reader with non plot stuff. And it's one of the things I love about reading short stories and and these Mieville short stories have been really good is that if you invest in those kind of techniques in the technical aspect of writing, you can delay the plot revelation for a long time. And because it's because the reader knows something like I only have 10 pages of this and I love what I'm reading so far. It almost doesn't matter if something's going to happen because all the technical stuff is so good. But this story is about something, and and most great short stories are, in fact. But uh, <laughs> I just I just think that Mieville's really a strong technical writer. Well, at this point of the story, the building whisperer reflects on how he has helped build the foundation, not through this offering, through this appeasement, but how he contributed to its existence. He was in the first mechanized infantry division of the army of the U.S. Army. Uh, And I think it's pretty clear. I think we're supposed to understand that he fought in Desert Storm. And he helped to build the trenches around his fighting positions that were a trap to others who either fell in, who were enemy combatants who fought in these uh, sand trenches, or those who died in them and never left. And he can't escape his war memories. Mayville writes, he had seen the men made into mortar And he had seen them looking at him. And here, Glenn, as you pointed out, is the return of these heavy machines. These machines that move ground. They're tanks and uh, other construction machines that are basically contributing to uh, modes of killing instead of building. And in this narrator's mind, he can't really separate what is used to build and what is used to to kill right and and what he's talking about here is the 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 famous and and I guess maybe really it's infamous this is the the bulldozer assault that took place in the last days of the the Gulf War in 1991 or or Operation Desert Storm as you referred to it earlier Brandon obviously we're going to talk more about this in the discussion uh since uh, at this point this is really a forgotten war it's really seen only as a precursor to the much longer Iraq war so we'll we'll explicate what the Gulf War was and this bulldozer assault uh when we're done with the with the story Well, we're almost done. The foundation is everywhere, and it is constantly speaking, and the man cannot escape it. He thought he could leave it all behind in the desert. Uh, You know, his contribution to building the foundation, his exposure to uh, the trauma of killing or seeing killing happen, but it followed him home. The foundation speaks. It says, we are hot and alone. We are hungry. We eat only sand. We are full of it. We are full but hungry. 
We eat only sand. His wife left him after he heard the voices screaming to him when he tried to build the addition to, the, to his house. And he sees that the city around him is built on the buried wall of the dead. And, and that's why he gave them this apartment building as an offering. He let it fall so that they could be satiated. He can't escape the voices that now include the howling of lost soldiers. The liquid that comes up from the ground in his dreams in the pit he dug in his house is either blood or oil, but it's all the same. It's all from the foundation of bodies that everything is built on. And now it's the day after the offering of the building, but the voices have not stopped. They will never stop. He mourns the lives of those he killed through neglect from letting the building fall. He's overcome with grief. The offering means nothing to the foundation. They're not trying to communicate anything to him at all. They're not trying to get revenge or, or even to teach a lesson. They merely are. They are the fact of what everything is built on. Without them, we would have nothing. They all say the same thing. You built us, and you are built on us, and below us is only sand. That's the end of the story. Man, and what an ending. I mean, this whole story turns out to be about a man who is suffering from guilt about deaths that he caused, that he's responsible for during the Gulf War. He's hearing voices. He can't get them to stop, but he thinks that these voices want to eat people, and so he essentially kills people for them, including six children. But then it turns out that that's not what they want after all, right? That's not what they're interested in, that he's killed people for no reason, for no purpose. And killing people for seemingly no reason, no purpose is maybe even the root of the problem to begin with. And so I've really only got two things that I want to talk about with this short story and, and, and tightly focused story, I think, is a good way to put it as well. Uh, and these are the Gulf War and then the question of really whether any of this is real or if the House Whisperer is actually just suffering from PTSD. And I think let's start with that, since uh, I don't think that we need the background of the bulldozer assault to answer that question. So... Let's begin by building up to the big question of whether or not this is real and look at what and look actually at what it would mean for this to be real, right? For the supernatural element of this story to be literally true as it's presented on the page. Uh, and so I guess that's my, my question, Brandon, is just what's your understanding of the foundation of sentient dead people under this uh, anonymous but American city? How did it get there? How long has it been there? What is its relationship to the people that the, the House Whisperer buried alive in Iraq? Uh, what's your understanding of, of all of this? How, how do you make a sort of metaphysics of this? Well, I think that the way that we are invited into this story as a second person narration is meant to overcome the suspension of disbelief that's required to buy into the metaphor of this story. So I do think we're meant to understand that the house whisperer is real, but the metaphysics of the story or why he's so good at this house whispering business 
doesn't have to necessarily be tied to the fact that this this foundation of the dead bodies is all over the place. It could be merely that that's how he experiences his skill or he's he's mapped on his own guilt and trauma uh and and really realizing that America has almost been continually at war since its since its founding uh and really before its founding as well uh which is weird to say that a country's been at war before it was founded but uh I'm going to stick with that here for a moment that th- this this area of land th- that became the United States of America has been engaged in war for a long time and he, he contributed to that he was a part of that stream of history that that participating in America's wars and this is the way he has ex- this is the way his kind of trauma has expressed itself so i i don't think there are really uh people poured like mortar or cement below the ground i think this i think we're meant to understand that this man has a real skill in understanding structural flaws in buildings uh and that his trauma has mapped this has mapped this vision onto it his dreams are apocalyptic full of imagery of you know like burning oil fields and explosions uh corroded ground things like that and he is sort of mixing all of this stuff and the supernatural element of this story can work without the man's experience of his skill being 100% accurately reported to the reader. I like your reading that this is a a story that is taking up the fact that our modern world, I mean, especially for those of us living in the West, right, uh, North America, Western Europe, uh, that our world is built on a legacy of, of state violence. And certainly that, and I do think you're totally right to characterize the United States as being a country that has been at war almost continuously since even before the United States existed, right? Uh, I mean, you know, the War of Independence started even before the Declaration of Independence was signed, for example. And that was really the reading I wanted to have of this story is that Mieville is pointing to that, right? That he's thinking about the legacy of imperialism and colonialism and uh, their relationship with the establishment of industrial capitalism that defines our world now. And certainly we have seen Mihaevil, you know, put his uh, progressive socialist politics in his stories before. It's what we talked about the most when we uh, we did uh, certain reports of uh, reports of certain events in London as well. But I really got thrown here by the specificity of these dead people, right? That these are the dead people in whatever American city this is. You, you thought maybe it was DC. I just, for some reason that totally can't be textually supported, was thinking it was Florida. But in either case, right, the people who are under the foundation are not native to wherever this is. They're not native to America. So they're not the local victims of this, right? They're not victims of, say, the War of Independence or the Civil War or the War of 1812. They are these people from Iraq, right? And that doesn't make a whole lot of sense if what we're thinking of is this as a metaphor for the world is literally built on the victims of state violence in an abstract, in a generalized sense, because it is specific to the people that the protagonist here, the house whisperer, killed. And all of that, at least for me, suggests that 
the supernatural element of this story is not real. That this is definitely a weird fiction story where we can ask, yeah, but is the supernatural thing actually happening or is it all just in this person's head? And I think the answer is definitely it is just in this person's head that he is suffering from PTSD and is envisioning the world as being something that it is not. Yeah, that is more or less what I was trying to say. I think that, that <laughs> he, he does have this skill and regardless of what it actually is, whether or not it's a, a supernatural ability or an, an incredibly honed sense of intuition, the way that he is experiencing it himself is through this expression of of trauma, of deep trauma and, and remorse and regret. It's not actually the case. Like we wouldn't ever dig down into the ground and see this if somebody in this world were to uh say well where is it where is this foundation where are these cracked and broken bodies uh and he would say they're just below the surface nobody would find them it's merely the ex- you know the way that he is experiencing his own skill at figuring out what's wrong with houses and that's what is happening in the story it is all in his head but i do think he is a building whisperer i think that that is a, a you know the the real weird element of the story. Oh, I definitely think that he's a really great home inspector and I suppose I would <laughs> like to hire him at some some point but but I do think that we should I do think we should pause before we we move on to talking about the Gulf War specifically. I I do think that we should pause here and just talk a little bit about how common an experience like this is. I mean not specifically the house whispering, right? But soldiers coming home from war, being unable to adjust back to civilian life and then losing whatever life they may actually have had here, the life they were even trying to come back to, right in the form of their their family leaving, which is how that manifests here. You and I were lucky. We this is not a part of our army stories. This is not a part of our military experience, but we know people who had this experience and it's it's far too common. It is far too common. And the the way that Mieville writes about the this man's trauma of digging in the ground to, to do something good, to add an extra room to his house. Maybe they're expecting another kid or something like that. They, they want to expand their living space as a family. And is just you can just see the image of this guy digging a hole in his yard and just breaking down and coming out of that hole a, a different person it's kind of like uh it's kind of like a reversal of a rebirth imagery that that he's he's really becoming undead in some way instead of reborn that he's emerging from this hole in the ground and scaring his family imagining that he's covered in this liquid whether it's blood or oil that doesn't matter that he kind of comes out this this ghoul or monster uh, and it's it's kind of really and it's really strong imagery I think that Mieville has used to show this moment of transformation that is not a rebirth but is a worsening of the matter in the uh, main character of the story's life and this story is written at and then and certainly takes place during a, a time when 
there wasn't really any access to mental health care for American service members, uh, you know, whether or not they're coming home from war, but really just at all, but especially for for veterans, people who've gotten out of the the military, that there just wasn't real access to uh, enough or or good mental health care, which is something that has has changed uh, pretty dramatically, though. uh, And and although I've been removed from this world, I guess both of us have now actually for, well, for nearly a decade, I I suppose. Uh, My sense is, of course, that still this is in some ways a political issue, as uh, I suppose all things that are about government spending money are, and there probably still isn't enough mental health care available to veterans. But at least now the stigma about this is is gone because this is something that uh, we and and our, our comrades, people we've never met, ha- desperately have needed. And I, I'm glad that a story like this appeared in a newspaper, that it wasn't something that appeared in you know Weird Tales or just a, an anthology collection that only people interested in weird fiction were going to read, that Mieville was in some way, uh, in a weird fiction way, bringing some light to this uh, this plight to this experience of, of that soldiers have all too frequently. I think the PTSD narrative in this country, or the the or the erosion of the stigma, really began after uh, the Gulf, the first Gulf War or or Desert Storm, um, because people were coming home and they were not okay. They experienced some terrible things, and there was question of uh, chemical weapons being used as well, but. Even after the Vietnam War, terms like shell shock or things like that were still being used, uh, which were terms for PTSD, you know, after World War Two and World War One. But they're always euphemistically used. And I think after the Gulf War, if I recall correctly, um, that is when the government and higher up officials really started talking about PTSD. And, and maybe it's because on some level so many people so many soldiers felt as though they didn't know what they were fighting for in these wars and it wasn't just a you were a great soldier you did an incredible job this was a this was a, a really important cause and part of the cost of you fighting this war is carrying this burden um but what you did was good you helped your country that people Many soldiers, I think, came home and felt a little bit disillusioned by what they, what was called a war and what they were engaged with, the activities, what they were doing and what it was for. And so there was no euphemistic term to kind of tell them to just be tough. And in some ways, this is simply a feature of the way that we and, and other countries in the West organize our militaries in the sense that, and by what I mean by that is that we love the idea of citizen soldiers, right? Citizens, people who are uh, citizens of a, a democracy, a representative democracy, who temporarily take on the the duty of military service. And then at some point, maybe that's four years, six years, whatever your commitment might be. Maybe it's 20 years if you do the whole the whole thing and retire, you go back to being a civilian. And the idea is that we are civilians first and soldiers, sailors, Marines, airmen, I guess space force people now too, but that we are we are that second, right? That the thing we are at our core is civilians. And that being a civilian is the default thing that we're going to go back to. And that's very different from what other societies have had, uh, other societies that have been organized around war, or, or whether or not they're organized around war, but have had a class of people whose whole identity is actually that they are warriors. 
and never civilians, or that the time they spend being civilians, engaged in civilian activities, that's the aberration and it's the soldiering, it's the warrioring that is the default mode. And one of the consequences of the way that we do this is that we're asking people who've gone through a traumatic experience to leave that over there, go back home and pretend none of that ever happened without uh, at least until recently, thinking long term, uh, at least until after the Gulf War in particular, any ability to get help uh, processing what you've experienced that will actually let you go back to doing banal things like just watching TV and uh using your grill in your backyard, selling cars to people, uh, working in an office, right? Uh, it's really hard to adjust to all of those things. I mean, it was hard for me just getting out of the, the military in a, a non-combat environment and going back to being a civilian, let alone what it is to leave a, an actual war, to leave a combat situation and go directly back to that. But it's built into the way that we do things. And I'm not suggesting we do things differently, but we do need to recognize, and I think we are recognizing now, that it is baked into it. It is built into the way that we have decided to have our military. And if we're going to have that, then we need to have tools for people when they get out. And I think we do have them now. I think so too. I mean, one of the things you can always point to as a really great expression of this mindset of the difficulty of leaving it all behind or the expectation that you should just leave it over there uh, and the isolation and alienation that come from feeling that, feeling like you have no one to talk to or people don't understand is, uh, you know, the first Rambo movie, First Blood, which is so different from the movies that come after it. Oh, yeah. Um, but is a real exploration of this isolation, alienation of, of, of PTSD, um, of being kind of trapped in those memories or just feeling like you need to use your skills as a soldier somehow, even if the situation is inappropriate. Um, but the, 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 the monologue at the end of that movie that Sylvester Stallone gives is, is really just about that return to normalcy. That's become impossible for the character, John Rambo. And I, th and I really think it's one of the best kind of monologues in, in all of film history. I think it's so good. Um, and, that was another movie or piece of culture or art that helped begin to slowly shift these attitudes as well to recognize that this is not normal or okay. This is not about just toughing it out. Like there is a real problem with this adjustment period of leaving it all behind and, and asking people to just do that because they're not living in the same context that you are necessarily and uh yeah it's th this stuff is still underexplored i think in our um, pop culture landscape in our cultural landscape uh but this story i think is a really great expression uh, a really great exploration of of that sort of trauma i think so as well and of course we have talked about this topic before we we've done this over on the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast. Gene Wolfe was a, a combat soldier in the, the Korean War, which is a, a largely forgotten war, in fact, called the Forgotten War. And uh, I want to talk about the Gulf War, actually, as a largely forgotten war as well. I mean, people I just don't think know that much about it. I think that we should 
And I think that we should honor the people who participated in this by talking a little bit about the details. So uh, I'm just going to put my history professor hat on here and just maybe lecture for what I hope will just be about 90 seconds, but might be a few minutes. I don't know, Brandon, you might have to, to rein me in here. But the, <laughs> the Gulf War, it lasted seven months uh, at the end of 1990 and the beginning of 1991. And this war began with the Iraqi conquest of Kuwait at the beginning of August 1990. The impetus for this war is super complex, but it boils down, uh, I think we can boil it down to the aftermath of the Iran-Iraq war of the 1980s. Iraq was heavily in debt to both Kuwait and Saudi Arabia. Uh, Iraq had borrowed a lot of money in order to fight that war. And also had a lot of infrastructure to rebuild, uh, as well as citizens to help because of the destruction of the war. And Kuwait at this time was not abiding by the OPEC decisions about how much oil to produce uh, for reasons all of its own and that we don't need to bring in here. But the result of this was that oil prices dropped, meaning that Iraq's income from the sale of Iraqi oil decreased, making it unable to pay its debts. And since Kuwait was at the heart of both problems, it's the reason they are in debt and the reason their revenues are uh, declining. Uh, once diplomacy failed, or maybe even before diplomacy totally failed, Iraq invaded. And so at the end of 1990, the U.S. and uh, a coalition of 35 other countries began sending troops to Saudi Arabia. And then in January 1991, those forces crossed into Iraq and Kuwait in order to defeat the Iraqi army and liberate Kuwait. And there were other agendas as well. I mean, like destroying Iraqi military equipment and military infrastructure in order to make it in order to make Iraq unable to wage another war anytime soon. That's just one example of other agendas that the coalition forces had. All of this lasted only about five weeks before Iraq surrendered. And this bulldozer assault that's really at the heart of this story, this occurred in the last three days of the war. The Iraqi government, and, and really, right, this is the, the Saddam Hussein regime, was determined not to surrender, or at least not to surrender unconditionally. And so the last bits of the Iraqi army had established a defensive position of like trenches and walls and, and fences. Uh, and I think landmines was a thing that we were really very concerned about. I mean, you know, if you uh, know anything about 20th century Europe and you can think of the, the Maginot Line, for example, these big defensive fortifications. And so the, the first infantry division, the first mechanized infantry division decided just to use bulldozers to destroy an area of trenches rather than to assault the, the trenches. And nearly 500 Iraqi soldiers were buried alive. And this was a really controversial thing at the time. In fact, American military leadership knew this even as they were planning it. And so they banned reporters from the area, which was very unusual for this war. It's a war that most of us at home got to watch on TV. And later on, this incident was even omitted from reports, all that sort of thing, right? So highly controversial. But even later on, when the incident came to light, the CO of the brigade that had done this, and I am quoting here, he said... I know burying people like that sounds pretty nasty, but it would have been even nastier if we had to put our troops in the trenches and clean them out with bayonets. Right, this is the exact same reasoning behind dropping atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki at the end of the Second World War. 
And I do want to be clear that I am not suggesting that we debate the ethics of either of those decisions here, though this is something that my students love to do. It's a really great thing to do in a classroom. And instead, Brandon, I really just want to know about your cultural memory of the Gulf War as someone who I, I think, anyway, if I've done my math correctly, was probably too young to really know what was going on at the time. Uh, is this something that you learned about in school later as being important? Or was this something that you encountered through other people in the army? I was too young to have any real context of of what was going on with the Gulf War, but uh, we would we growing up we lived on the same uh, property as my grandparents, not the same house. We had uh, my grandparents owned a lot of land. They had about seventy acres, and uh, there were two houses on the property. That you know, I was young, grew up there. Ty was about six, which is right around when the Gulf War was ending. So I have a, just because we were we moved away and that was like the first big experience of my life. I have a lot of memories from around that time. <laughs> um, and I remember we would go over to their house on, you know, Saturday nights or so and, and watch uh, Murder, She Wrote. But we, we were there all the time and the news was off and on. And I, I remember watching, uh, I remember watching the Gulf War on TV. This is one of my earliest memories probably. Um, but I really had no other context beyond that. I wonder if we did learn about it in high school. I was always aware of it. So it's it's one of those things that's part of my memories or like memories of culture that I don't know when I really learned more about it. Certainly um, from learning from older soldiers in the army, because I joined the army only about, uh, you know, 12 years after this ended. So th there was some minor overlap, but not much. Um, and then reading about things like Gulf War syndrome, uh, you know, the Amer the potential use of, of chemical weapons or whether it was depleted uranium or whatever's going on with the strangely named Gulf War Syndrome. I remember that being in the news a lot, probably before 9-11. Um, but I remember the name General Schwarzkopf, uh, <laughs> you know, Stormin. Yeah, you got it. Stormin Nor Norman. Yeah, Stormin <laughs> Norman. Um, so... It's it's kind of always been there. I was probably just right at the age where I was beginning to become aware of the larger world, and this was a, a big event. Um, so I don't I don't really know when I learned more about it. I I hadn't known much about the bulldozer assault until we uh, were covering this episode. So that that you know for me the stuff that stood out was the the PTSD stuff and the Gulf War syndrome and the and and in fact I think part of the reason why Gulf War syndrome. But why the PTSD, why the PTSD st stigma began to fade away also is that Gulf War syndrome couldn't be explained by any sort of usual means. And there was a question of whether or not it was the psychological toll of war, that this was uh, a strange sort of maybe hysteria or hysterical um, group reaction to that these people, uh, these soldiers had. Yeah, the Gulf War syndrome was uh, that was an absolutely huge deal. It was a big controversy because it, it felt a little bit like it was a government cover-up. I mean, I think a lot of the Gulf War syndrome stuff was really inspirational to the X-Files, for example, uh, which is maybe something we should we should do sometimes, uh, look at the way the X-Files <laughs> deals with uh, with this sort of thing. But yeah, I watched this war on TV. I, I was in seventh grade at the time, and that was my first year of uh, middle school and then uh, going into high school where I was a latchkey kid. So I would just come home from school 
school and would watch this war on CNN. And man, I knew everything about Scud missiles. I learned a lot of geography and a lot of history from being interested in watching this this war happen on TV, which for months was uh, was nonviolent, right? That it was the, uh, the the violence of occupying Kuwait was over very quickly. And then there were many, many months of building up forces uh, as a kind of defensive perimeter to protect Saudi Arabia and Israel. That was the, the uh, called Operation Desert Shield. And then the actual invasion of Iraq and Kuwait, uh, I guess to liberate Kuwait, of course, uh, was called Desert Storm. But I was really very into watching this. But then, of course, I was in the army just, I don't know, eight years later, I guess. And all of my drill sergeants were veterans of the Gulf War, uh, though they also were all veterans of Somalia, which weighed on their minds way more than the Gulf War did. But the Gulf War still colored Everything that I did in the military, uh, keeping an eye on Iraq was the thing that we were doing in the 90s, uh, as well as uh, keeping an eye on the Balkans and and so on, right? That we There was a real sense that we were going to go back to Iraq to fight a war again. Uh, and in fact, we did, though I don't think in the way that uh, any of us would have predicted. It wasn't the way that we were being told that this was an important thing that we needed to be ready for. It was why we were, um, the way that that worked out with 9-11 being the catalyst for that really, I think, took everybody by surprise. But yeah, this loomed large in my military service. But it is interesting now, right, I, you know, because I teach uh, college students aged generally between 18 and 22, they're sometimes a little bit older than that, and they have never even heard of the Gulf War. They They've never heard of it at all. They've also generally never heard of the Korean War, right? So there are a lot of forgotten wars. They also tend not to know that we're actually at war now and have been their entire lives, and they can't tell me where that is. Uh, and so anyway, that is why I wanted to spend a little <laughs> bit of time talking about this war, just to remember some of the particulars of it, uh, just as a way of doing honor to the people who had to participate in it, the people who had to fight in it, which is something that matters to, to both of us as as veterans ourselves. Right. And th- this bulldozer assault is really uh, a terrible, terrible, terrible action uh, committed by the, the U.S. armed forces. And I think, you know, it, there's a sense, I think, when you're a soldier, uh, when you're in basic training, when you are learning the rules of war and conduct and um, the rules of engagement, that there you're trying to create a sense of, of fair play. You're not going to kill chaplains or medics, you know, the Geneva conventions of war. Um, you can stand uh, protests or rioting. You don't shoot first. You know, there, there's all sorts of rules that you are taught that you will be following on the battlefield. And the idea that rather than engaging a, a foreign army as an occupying force in a fair fight and just choosing instead to collapse their infrastructure with them in it as an acceptable course of action has to be extraordinarily demoralizing and disorienting as somebody who's trained that what you're engaging with is as a soldier is is you know winning hearts and minds it's showing that hey America's not so bad we're going to act with the height with the height of conduct conduct and fair play. And I I just, I can't imagine there was a lot that went on when, when you and I were in the military uh, that did not sit well with either of us in terms of actions taken by our military. Uh, But something like this being there, being ordered to do this as a, as a soldier to sit inside of an armored personnel vehicle, armored personnel carrier, 
where nothing can really harm you and to push sand over uh, human beings who are also just trying to follow orders as, as, an, as an army of soldiers to end that many lives without any personal cost, I think, has to feel wrong. It has to feel dirty on some level as a soldier. Yeah, and a, a big part of the controversy of this was that there wasn't really any strategic need to break the ring of fortifications in the, the middle of Iraq, that Iraq's ability to wage uh, an aggressive war, to wage an offensive, any sort of counteroffensive, had already been destroyed. And that there was no reason necessarily to have to defeat these forces or to have to get uh, tanks and infantry beyond them. There certainly was the sense that the coalition forces, American forces and others could have just waited a week. There could have been a stalemate there, a standoff there while negotiations happened or just waiting for the Hussein regime to, to, to blink. But that that's not what happened and that that's not and, and that what happened here was something that was decided at uh, on the ground at a fairly low level. And and I guess for me, this really reminds me a lot of uh, at the end of the, the First World War, when the armistice is going to go into effect on the, uh, or at the 11th hour, on the 11th day of the 11th month, because uh, some negotiator thought that would be cute. Uh, and so you've got a whole morning before the armistice goes into effect. And so many generals sent their troops into combat for no reason, simply to get more land to 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 acquire more a greater kill count or, or something it's hard for me even to fathom why as a general uh you would order your troops to to do that for no gain other than for your own sense of ego i guess and that was i remember in the news that this incident was was very much compared to those sorts of things as well the sense that it it wasn't a choice of do we bulldoze people or do we uh, at no risk to american soldiers or do we bayonet people at risk to american soldiers that it really was a choice of do we wait or do we not wait or or it was really a choice of do we wait or do we bury these people alive and and, and that was the that was the real controversy here well, the Kubrick movie Paths of Glory is is about a kind of exactly this mentality, and you know one of our favorite poets, Wilfred Owen, died you know just six days before this armistice, which people, high level generals, etc., must have known that negotiations were taking place, and the whole war could have was slowing down at that point, and yet still, needless lives were lost for. Uh, the idea of honor or glory or something like that. Uh, again, th- th- we've gone way off topic here, <laughs> um, <laughs> but th- this China Mieville story is is really good, uh, really excellent piece of art, piece of cultural criticism about the effects of wars on soldiers, especially wars that are already fading from our memory within a decade of them taking place. And uh, there's not really an effort, a big effort in our country, even on Memorial Day, to talk about these sort of unsavory wars. And I think that that is a massive uh, cultural scandal, that by acting that way, by not remembering these, these wars, is an admission as a culture that we don't think they matter that much but the effects they had on the people who fought in them are very real um and so that is you know something to take away from this story i think so on that note as we think about the wars that are 
culture has forgotten or is fading from memory. That is going to do it for this episode. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. As always, you can find us and our other creative projects, our other podcasts at claytemplemedia.com. And if you'd like to support the network and have your say in what we cover, please join us at our Archon level on Patreon at patreon.com slash claytemplemedia. Please join us at the Clay Temple forums or on our subreddit, Clay Temple Media. Let us know what you thought of Foundation, of your memories of the Gulf War, whether you were growing up in it or during, whether you were growing up during it took place or, or you fought in it yourself or have uh, real other distinct memories from that time. Let us know what you thought China Mieville was, was trying to say about that, about soldiers, about PTSD. This is a conversation we'd like to continue with you. So Foundation is the the last story of the year for us. And I, I will say it's a great story to be ending on. I mean, just I, I thought this was a, a brilliant story. So next time in two weeks, we're going to be back with our 2020 year in review show. We'll uh, we'll pick some favorites, uh, also some least favorites. Uh, but maybe we'll see if Foundation shows up on uh, on either of those lists. So I don't think it's going to show up on our least favorite lists at all. Oh, no, uh, certainly not. <laughs> but we'll also talk about the, the common themes and motifs that we saw this year. And then we're going to look ahead to 2021, where we've got, uh, I think, a lot of new stuff in store, which will be exciting to, to talk about. But until then, we greet you and say farewell. Farewell.